So it was about a week ago, I was on the phone with a dear friend of mine, another Unitarian Universalist minister, someone who has served our congregations for more than 30 years, and she is recently retired. And as I called her and she began to talk with me, it became clear almost immediately that she had a December sermon to give, but no pulpit to give it from. So I settled in and I listened to the sermon. And in a nutshell, this is what she said. She said, why can't we Unitarian Universalists just admit it? Why can't we admit it that we need these stories? Why can't we let go of the questions of whether the Hanukkah story or the Christmas story or the solstice story are factually true and just admit the fact that we need the old stories in this time of growing darkness? Why can't we just admit it, she said. She said, come on, it is dark out there. It's getting darker all the time. We need a reason to come together and tell the old stories. We need a reason to gather with family and friends. We need to light candles. We need to tell stories. We need to sing songs. We need to pull out those recipes from generations past and have the tastes and smells and feelings we've had before. We need them, she said. We need to be able to remember we're a part of something so much larger than ourselves and that for generation upon generation, the dark has grown and the light has come back. We need to remember, she said. Now, I listened and I just couldn't agree more. It was one of those conversations where there was no argument. It was just, yes, yes, I agree. When this time of darkness comes, as it does every year, when the amount of darkness per day grows, the light diminishes. I too need those old stories. I think all of us do. And it is remarkably true across the world's faith traditions, the stories of light and dark that come at this time of year. These stories that I think connect us across faiths in so many ways. So today, as we're in this season where so many faith traditions talk about light and dark, I'm going to do just that, but I'm going to do it through the telling of three stories. Now, the first story takes us back in time a ways, and it takes us back to the Hanukkah story. The Hanukkah story that really, if you look back like and do some of the research which I had fun doing at different points, you find that Hanukkah falls on the 25th day of Kislev, which is the month that always holds the winter solstice. Now, coincidence or not, you decide the 25th of December was also the date that marked the birth date of the unconquerable sun for the Romans. For Christians, the 25th of December, the birth of Jesus the Christ. All converging around this time of year. Now, the Hanukkah story that I'll take us back to, we know the snapshot version. I told it to the kids earlier today, but I would like to go a little deeper with it, to go beyond the snapshot to the fuller picture. And the story goes like this. It's over 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years back, and the Alexandrian Empire has colonized Jerusalem declaring that all local religions, including Judaism, needed to be rooted out. Jewish customs, celebration of Jewish rituals and holidays were strictly forbidden upon pain of death. 
It was a time, quite frankly, of religious warfare and oppression. The holy temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, and many Jews turned away from their, religions and, from their religion and their traditions in order to save their own lives. But there was one small band of Jews known as the Maccabees who decided they were going to fight back. They were going to, to have a revolution of sorts. They left Jerusalem, they went and lived up in the hills and the forest, and they waged a guerrilla war against their oppressors. And in time, they did something I think nobody believed they could do. They actually won. They fought against their oppressors. They defeated them. They recaptured Jerusalem. And they set out to rededicate their holy temple. Now, the whole Maccabean army made their way to the temple. And when they got there, they found that things were far worse than they could have even imagined. Every bit of the temple had been desecrated in particular ways that were particularly awful for them. The altar had been profaned, the gates were burned down, the courts were overgrown, the priests' rooms were in ruin. And so when they saw this, they tore their garments, they wailed loudly, they put ashes on their forehead, they fell to the ground, and they cried out to their God. And after they had done this, they did something else. They got up and they got to work. They began rebuilding the temple. They cleansed it. They consecrated the courts. They demolished the desecrated altar and built a new one. They selected new priests without blemish to lead them, they said. They restored the lamp and they searched the temple for oil. But it turned out the Greeks had defiled most of the oil in the temple and the Maccabees found just one bottle, one single bottle that was still sealed by the high priest. Now they knew that once they lit the lamp, it had to burn without ceasing. It could not go out or all their work was in vain. This was one of the rules. So what were they going to do? They had one bottle of oil, and they knew it would be at least a week before more oil could reach the temple. And there, they had this decision to make. What are they going to do with their one bottle of oil? They had come back to their temple. They had reclaimed their city. They had seen the ruin it was in. They'd done the hard work of cleaning things up and making them right. And there it was, the 25th day of Kislev. Would they light the temple or not? It just happened to be the anniversary of the desecration of the temple the first time. They had to make a decision. And they decided to light the lamp, to use the oil. There's so much in this story. It is a rich, rich story. And there have been arguments for years and years, generations about which part of the story to lift up, how to tell this tale. You see, the rabbis, the Jewish scholars, all the way back, right, since the 1800s, they have had these discussions and arguments. What piece of this story do we lift up? Do we lift up the Maccabees who engaged in this guerrilla war? We don't want to celebrate violence. We don't want to celebrate those choices. Do we lift up the fact that the lamp burned longer than anyone thought it could? The miracle of light in the darkness? Now, I can certainly understand wanting to lift up that part of the story. It's clear, right? It's a gift. This idea of light shining in the darkness longer than we could ever hope for. But there's another part of the story that hooks my attention and my imagination every time I hear it. 
And that part of the story is this. It's that moment when the Maccabees return to the temple, when they see what it's like there. They see all the ways that it has been harmed and destroyed. They look at it with wide open eyes, and they feel it. They feel the loss. They feel the sense of what has happened to them. They grieve. They rage. They do that work. And maybe, I imagine too, while they're there, they see not just what has been done to them, but they see too what's happened in their own hearts. Maybe they see the part they have played now, understandably, perhaps, but that part where their own heart has been damaged by violence and oppression in this. I imagine them there in the temple feeling and seeing all of these complicated things, the grief, the rage, maybe the insight. And then here's the part I love, the part I think is the real miracle. With eyes wide open to all of that pain and destruction, they decide to get to work. They decide to rebuild themselves and that temple They decide to do the hard work of cleaning up, of setting things right, and then of one final giant risk of lighting that lamp and leaning in to faith and hope. With all that has happened to them, that to me is the miracle, the lighting of the lamp, the leaning in to hope and faith. That is story number one for this morning. Stories number two and three, they come from within our own faith tradition. They come from two of our most eloquent, I think, ministers, Unitarian Universalist ministers. They deal with the reality, the complicated, messy reality of our lives, right? Of loss, of the darkness that can grow in our spirits, of the ways that we harm one another, all of those pieces, So these two stories, they come, like I said, from two different ministers, one a self-proclaimed humanist, the other a self-proclaimed atheist. Now story number two from the humanist among our ministry. It comes from the Reverend William Schultz. Now Bill Schultz has been a Unitarian Universalist minister for years, and he has served as the executive director of Amnesty International for quite some time. And in that role, he's seen all kinds of things. And several years ago, he delivered a paper to a group of ministers titled, What Torture Has Taught Me. And I'll tell you, when I heard he was speaking on this, I paid attention. He's somebody who doesn't shy away from the difficult realities of the world that we live in, of those challenges. He's been to jails and refugee camps all around the world. He has probably seen more than anyone else I have ever encountered. And after he saw all of this, the darkness that can inhabit our spirit, he offered up this distillation of his learnings, this theology he has come to after all of that, after being there and testing his theology against that real-life experience of the victims and the perpetrators. And this is what he came down to. He said, you know, after coming face-to-face with evil, there were pieces Obviously, pieces of my theology that began to feel shaky. I think this happens to many of us when we come face-to-face with loss, with accident, with evil. He said the two pieces that started to feel shaky for me were ones I'd, I'd previously held up, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, 
and this idea that given the opportunity, every person will make the right moral choice. He said, after seeing these things, I wasn't so sure about these two things. But I did come to believe even more firmly, he said, in two other things, two other tenets of my faith, of my beliefs. I came to believe even more strongly, he said, in the indomitability of the human spirit and of the workings of unfettered grace, even in the midst of darkness. After Bill Schultz offered this up, he closed his talk with an image, with a story that has captured my attention ever since, and it's a story about a chess master in an art gallery. And this is what happens. He says, Chancing upon a great painting in a European gallery of a defeated Faust, sitting opposite the devil at a chess table, with only a knight and a king on the board, and the king in check. The chess master stopped to stare. The minutes changed into hours as the chess master stared and stared at this painting. And then finally, the master exclaims, It's a lie. It's a lie. The king and the knight, they have another move. They have another move. And that, that Bill Schultz says, that is what finally torture has taught me. That it is not just the king, but the knight. Not just the queen, but the rook. Not just the bishop, but the pawn. Not just the wealthy, but the pauper. Not just the fortunate, but the weary. Not just the torturer, but the tortured. Not just the powerful, but every single person. Every single person. Until the day we die, every single blessed person on the face of this earth, he says. Every single person has another move. We all have another move. (coughs) After years, years of coming face to face with evil, this is what he said. That if we are alive, we all have another move. That it is up to us to take it. To get to work cleaning the temple, restoring the altar, living in to this gift of unfettered grace of the indomitability of the human spirit. So story number three. Story number three comes from the Reverend Kate Braestrup, like I said, the self-proclaimed theist in the bunch. And she uh, has a, a great job, I think. She works as chaplain to the main game wardens. And in that role, she is there, right? She's there in the woods with the game wardens as they are dealing with loss, with tragedy, with kidnapping. She's there when accidents happen, and she serves not just the families of those who have lost someone, but the officers who have to deal with these difficulties. And in her book, she offers up a number of these experiences and kind of distills her learning down of what she has come to believe after dealing with all these situations. And in this last story, she's driving home one night with a man named Frank, one of the officers, And he has just hours before dealt with an unspeakable tragedy. And there in the cab of his truck, he asks Kate the eternal question. Where was God in this? Where was God tonight when this happened? He asked her. It's the eternal question, right? If God exists, then where is God in an act of evil? Where is God when an accident happens that makes us question everything we thought we knew. 
Now thoughtfully and with incredible kindness, Reverend Braystrip dared to answer there in that night. And she said, simply, God is not in the accident or in the doing of evil. No lesson learned from loss is sufficient to believe that God had any hand in it, she says. God, quite simply, is in what happens next. God is in what happens when loving hands show up to respond in times of unspeakable difficulty. God is what happens when we try but fail to stop something terrible from happening. God is in our breaking hearts, she said, and God is in the way we take extra care with each other when we are reminded of the fragility of human life. God is not in the accident or in the evil, she says. God is in what happens next. Now listening to all this, I tell you, this is where for me, I feel like I come in, where we come in. If we all have another move, if God is in what happens next, then really it is up to us, isn't it? Up to us to live into the wisdom of the old stories. It is up to us to see the darkness that can happen around us and within us. It is up to us to keep our eyes open, even when it is hard. It is up to us to bear witness to our loss, to walk carefully into every room of that temple, to grieve with our broken hearts, to call out in our rage and our sadness. And then, once we have done that, when we are ready, it is up to us to take our next move. Then it is up to us to get to work, to build up the broken, to clear away the rubble, to restore our own faith then it is up to us to get to work holding out our hands to each other, becoming with each act of compassion one more small light on the web that holds all of us. So with all these stories, with all the complicated, messy stories that are out there and that are in our own lives, my message today is really a simple one at heart. No matter who you are, no matter what has happened to you or what you have done by intention, by accident, no matter what you have encountered in your life, look up. Look up and see the optimistic finger of the sun warming the blinds. Look up here and now and be a part of whatever is going to happen next. Look up. Awaken to the unfettered grace that is a part of our lives, the indomitable human spirit. Look up. Awaken. Name and grieve those dark spots. And then, when you are ready, take that next move. Get to work in whatever form that takes for you. Get to work bringing the holy to life in our small and big acts of compassion. Add your words, your actions to those millions of small lights of hope that hold all of us. Whatever it is, take your next move. May it be so, and amen.